on This is Vinyl Tap, Crimson Eye of the Great God Mars. Flashes in the sky turn house to styes. Hand of God has struck the hour. Happiness I cannot feel, and to me, love is unreal. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. This is Vinyl Tap, and I'm Doug Cooper, the host. I'm joined tonight by Encyclopedia Tony. Hello, hello. And our very humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good afternoon, Tapsters. And this afternoon, it's afternoon, by the way, and we are in the Vinegar Rune Saloon, and we are not talking about Lou Reed Transformer today. <laughs> no, that will be uh, upcoming. upcoming yes. yeah. two, of, two of the guys got confused on which one we were doing. <laughs> um, this is a big deal. Uh, we are doing uh, a genre... I don't know what to call it. I, I, well, I know what I call it. I, <laughs> Disparagingly, I, you call it what, Doug? This is music that, since I was in high school, I've called Iron Vomit music. <laughs> um, and it's a music I have avoided. And uh, soap tonight, Black Sabbath, Paranoid. I don't know what genre that is. It's heavy metal. Yeah, it's got to be. Okay, so we're going. <clears throat> there's a lot. Heavy, metal's gotten heavier since then. I think. Well, there's uh, different, you know, like anything, there's, su- and specifically with metal, there's subgenres. This is your basic kind of, like, if you were to yeah. scrape all the nonsense off, your basic building block of heavy metal. Okay. Well, I agree that it's basic. Um, <laughs> Gee. If, if, you can't, if you can't guess, some foreboding, this is, <laughs> this is foreshadowing, whatever. This is not an album I picked. And, um, <laughs> This album has nothing to do with Brian Eno or synthesizers, so no. you know that our uh, producer did not pick it. <laughs> Tony! Yeah, Doug? You chose this album. I did. Um, I'm going to ask a question uh, I, I uh, frequently ask at the beginning of these shows. Sure. <clears throat> why do you hate me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, are you wanting to know why I picked this album? Or that, same. Okay, I've got four reasons. The first is, uh, we're... Closing in on 100 episodes, I felt like it was about damn time we did a metal album. 
Um, Ladies and gentlemen, that's short for heavy metal. (laughs) And uh, I thought we might as well start with Black Sabbath because I think out of all the things I would like to do on this podcast, metal related, I think this is the most, and you're probably going to hate this because I want to do some other metal albums, maybe the most accessible metal album, particularly for you, Doug, because I think there's enough blues in it that you could at least listen to it and not want to run off the road. I could be wrong about that, but... Um, we shall find out. So, and the third reason is even though I, I like their debut album, Black Sabbath, a little bit better than Paranoid, Paranoid is, is the quintessential Black Sabbath album. This is the album that everybody knows. This is the album that put them on the map. This is the album that has the songs on it. So I think it's worth talking about. And number four, Revenge. I picked it for Revenge. You just happen to be... <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Collateral, uh, collateral damage. damage. This is revenge against JM. JM told me years ago, he may have changed his mind, but he told me years ago he hated Black Sabbath. And since he has had me listen for the last <laughs> three episodes to stuff that makes me want to rip my hair out, I thought I could repay the favor and pick a Black Sabbath album. So there you go. A very petty, very yeah. uh, juvenile reason for picking it, but that is it. Jonathan JM Rowe. Yes. You've just been told that you've been revengeified <laughs> and uh, i gotta ask you uh did did tony pick the right album to revengeify you he got close <laughs> <laughs> um well i wouldn't suggest that you tell him what closer would be yeah i'm not going to but um you know it, it might it, this album got better with every listen i will have to say that i think i have not heard this album in its entirety probably since high school uh and never by choice it just always happened to be that i'd be hanging out with somebody upon you. yeah it would be thrust upon me or i'd be on a road is there trip. usually a cloud of smoke yes uh, floating above your heads very much um so uh, yeah it it's you know, I definitely would not have picked it, but um, it, I, uh, the revenge, it's, it's not quite sweet revenge. Let's put it that way. Okay. So it's not, it's not high, high sweet revenge. Mm-mm. Well, I'll have I to think work this, harder. This is an opportunity for us to talk about what a wonderful person I am. Um, <laughs> you know, you have, uh, you have thrown a few things my way as well. That have uh, been a little rough on me, but I, 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 I've, 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 I've appreciated watching you grow, shouldered, <laughs> soldiered through. What, what I want to say is, sometime when I was in high school, I think, or later, uh, Ozzy Osbourne was visiting San Antonio, mm-hmm. Texas, mm-hmm. and he decided he needed to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. and perhaps the line was long, perhaps he was unfamiliar with the city, and he couldn't figure out where to go, but he went on. The Alamo. Well, I can correct the um, record if you'd like me to about that. Does this mean I have to quit hating his guts? No, 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 no. You can continue hating his guts. But he didn't actually pee on the Alamo. What did he do? He, so he, he, after a night of debauchery, this is when Ozzy wasn't in his best, um, his best self, if you want to say that. And he was heavily... I don't know about the time he was his best self. I think there maybe was, when this album we're talking about tonight, yeah. uh, better than he was when he when the Alamo thing happened. So he was drunk. Sharon Osborne, who I don't believe he's married to yet, had hidden all of his clothes so he wouldn't leave the hotel room. He put on one of her dresses. 
and went outside to find a place to, I guess, continue drinking, but he had to relieve himself. And so stumbles out of the hotel wearing one of her dresses and goes up to the first place he can find. And it's not the Alamo. It's the Cenotaph, which is a statue in the Alamo vicinity that commemorates all the dead uh, from the Alamo battle. So, oh, that's not bad. No, I'm not saying it wasn't bad. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, Do you know what, which name he picked to pee on? I don't. But here, here's, here's what's kind of interesting. He ended up, he gets arrested. He spends, uh, he spends the day in jail um, and uh, he's released on $40 bond. He played the show in San Antonio that night. And one thing we need to say to people, if they're not familiar with San Antonio, Texas, it is the metal capital of, of it Texas. It really is. Yeah. I mean, what was that station they had? It was the yeah. blowtorch that played all metal. I don't know, it but like it is, Kiss? I've gone yeah, to, I've gone to, I've gone to Iron Maiden shows there and it's nuts. I mean, that it, it is a heavy metal town, but anyway, he plays a show that night and then, Afterwards, they ban him, and he can't play San Antonio again. There's a happy ending to this story. He ends up, in 92, publicly apologizing, donating $10,000 to the Daughters of the Republic, who run the Alamo um, organization, and um, maintain the grounds, and uh, the city of San Antonio accepts his apology, and he is now allowed to come back and play the city when he comes through. If he could. Well, I'm glad you told me that, but uh, it does not detract from the fact that uh, I'm a wonderful person because I didn't know any of that. And I still said, yes, I will be fair and give these guys a chance. Well, just real quick. The other thing that happened a month prior to this was he bit the head off a live bat on stage. Um, I don't know. And he, I don't have a problem with that. He didn't know it was a live bat because what was what had happened is he started. He thought this was funny. Again, well, not his best self. And he would throw meat at the audience <laughs> and the audience would throw stuff back at him like snakes you know, all sorts of stuff. And somebody threw a bat on stage. He thought it was a rubber bat, picked it up, bit down on it, and immediately realized this is not a rubber bat. His blood starts running down his mouth. Uh, he had to get rabies shots, obviously. Yeah. So he did I not... the bat did, too. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, it, he, it's not a memory he looks back fondly on. I don't know if either one of those... Oh, didn't he, he uh, actually bite the head off a dove? Yeah, that was prior to that, too. Yeah. That was at a press conference, I believe. Yeah, he just yeah. picked, picked a, dead, a dove off the ground. I don't know how he got it. And There's a, For some reason, they released a whole bunch of dove when they were at this press well, party. And that's he, funny, because we have one in the Vinegar Room Saloon with us tonight. Uh, we'll keep Ozzy away from it. <laughs> my, um, my wife is rescuing a dove, which is quite ironic, considering what her husband does in the fall. Uh, <laughs> okay, Tony, let's, let's talk about where these guys came from. Well, Doug, before we do that, I think it's worth having a conversation about what heavy metal is to begin with. Um, it is something that has a bit of a checkered uh, history in terms of trying to figure out the the exact lineage of it or who coined the term. Um, it, it's, I would say, this is just me, I would say it's music that's, I mean, this is not just me, but this is my, it's typically steeped in the blues. It's got, usually got a pretty heavy low end lots of distorted guitars. Mm -hmm. It's typically faster paced. It's usually characterized by a singer, at least early on. This has changed a lot as you talked about metals changed, but early on who had a pretty high, high end register when he sings. Yeah. Um, and it tends to dwell on things that are not your typical pop 
music subject matter, like <laughs> death and war, the occult and war and things yeah. of that nature. Mythology. Yes, exactly. Um, it, it's funny when I was trying to figure out the uh, where the term came from. One of the first places people talk about is the song "Born to Be Wild." <laughs> And the reason they talk and, about that is obviously because it uses the term heavy metal thunder. Now, what they were talking about were were motorcycles. Yeah. Um, uh, just any motorcycle? Uh, Harley Davidson's. Thank you. Um, it, it's attributed to Lester Bangs, who was a f- famous music critic. Yeah. Who wrote for um, Cream and for Rolling Stone. Uh, he first used it in February. I'll give a little bit, brief history. He first used it in February of, 77, of 70 when he was reviewing a... a Guess Who album, <laughs> of all things. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, so, uh, very strange, but yeah, he used it. There's there's a Texas connection, because there is a gentleman named Mike Sanders, who also wrote for Cream and Rolling Stone. He wrote his reviews when he was attending University of Texas. He There's some speculation that he may have been the first person to attribute it to an actual genre. He was, um, he was reviewing Humble Pie's second LP, uh, in Rolling Stone, and he said it was n- a noisy, unmelod- el- unmelodic, heavy metal-laden rock band. Um, w- you know, so, I mean, that seems pretty on point in terms of using it for to describe a genre. He also used it in 71 in a Cream review for Sir Lord Baltimore's debut, Kingdom Come. So there's some speculation. I think most people say it's Lester Bangs, but uh, this this gentleman I talked about, Mike Sanders, in the interviews, blames himself for the use of it huh. and, and subsequently. Um, I think also just the fact that there were bands that had heavy metals in the name, Led Zeppelin, Iron Butterfly, that played this real kind of... Iron Vomit. <laughs> <laughs> played this real kind of low-end, yeah. faster-paced blues music. I think that probably also contributed to that. So, again... Um, you know, who knows, but there's some, some speculation about what the first metal band was. We played Steppenwolf obviously because of, of that deep purple is another band that people talk about, um, in terms of the, um, being the first metal band. They, of course, I mean, what we just heard was a little bit more blues heavy. Um, Another person that gets kind of that tag is Alice Cooper. Of course, Alice Cooper's vocals didn't really fit into that mix. They were much more kind of on the psychedelic tense things. Um, One band that gets overlooked by a lot of people, but who I think probably has maybe the biggest uh, claim to it is a band called Blue Cheer. In fact, uh, Getty Lee has publicly said he thinks of them as a first metal metal band. Yeah. 
So summertime blues was their big thing. Um, I, I I don't think though you can you can forego influences of other bands like the Kinks. seems like the kinks just keep popping up as an influence all the time particularly yeah. that song and the distortion and that crazy guitar solo and you really got me yeah it's, yeah uh, and it's also i've heard that song uh the the kinks being called the uh king of the power chords or the the birth of the power chord came from the kinks and, and in particular that song and power chords are you know pretty much the lingua franca of of heavy metal lingua franca <laughs> sound like something you speak american you just got back from so um that french canadian yeah the band we talked about last week the who also figures into the the sort of birth of metal yeah in particular i know you deceive me now here's a surprise i know that you have because there's magic in my eyes I think I could keep listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the you know, a, a certain very big British band at the time had a response to that song, which also uh, influenced, heavily influenced early metal, and that would be the Beatles. Helter Skelter, that's for anybody who says that Paul McCartney was a wimp. I just want to <laughs> add that little thing to it. Yeah. Um, and then one final band I want to talk about that I don't ever hear anybody mention, but I think is very, very obviously influential, and in, particularly for this band, and in particular a certain song we want to talk, we'll talk about tonight, and that is King Crimson. <laughs> So that that's sort of the building blocks of of metal, um, you know. And like I said, people don't talk about Crimson much when they talk about, it, especially that album. That's really the only song on that album that sounds like that. But it sounds enough like some of the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight that I think it's worth mentioning. And this album came out seventy nineteen seventy. It was yeah. So is that when you would mark roughly when this genre started getting its feet on the ground? Well, I think you can say that Sabbath was the band that brought it to the mainstream. Um, there, there's some interesting things about this band. They were formed at a time when pop culture was changing. There was a lot of people disillusioned with what the 60s supposedly had to offer. And the youth of the time 
being disillusioned were looking at, they just saw things as being bleak. And here comes a band that sings about things that are bleak. And, um, it really, I think hit, hit the, hit the, uh, the mark. And while they may not be the first metal band, they are, in, in my opinion, they're the most influential metal band that ever was ever out there. Yeah. What would you, would you say that heavy metal is the genre that gave birth to one of the best genres, grunge? <laughs> No. What do you think, uh, punk? Um, I don't. I don't know. I guess, I guess, but those guys. I would think those guys would look down their nose because there's a there's a. Well, uh, wait, all these genres are supposed to look down their nose no, at other people. Metal doesn't. It doesn't. No, metal yeah. is a genre of losers. They don't look down their nose at anybody. They're willing to accept anybody who's willing to 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 be a loser. What but, if, yeah. what if uh, Barry Manilow opened? Would the fans be crap? Well, okay, the fans might not. They may not like the music, but my point is that, um, you know, metal, metal. I mean, I think maybe I'm wrong, but I maybe because I knew a lot of them in high school, I don't think metal fans are quite as um, as opinionated about stuff. Maybe the newer ones are with the kind of the death metal and things like yeah. that. But, I mean, uh, these guys are, you know, grunge had kind of a highfalutin attitude about it um, yeah. in a lot of ways. Whereas there's nothing highfalutin about the album we're talking about tonight. Is they there, try. They try. Is but. there a, a part of the world that this came from, or is it happening on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time? Um, are you asking me about the industrial part of the UK? No, I'm asking because I really don't know. Well, um, I, I think... Uh, yeah, I want to say that mostly, uh, you know, the one person I didn't talk about in terms of having influence on metal was Jimmy Page, but I think Jimmy Page is probably, well, Blue Cheers an American band. I guess, yeah, I guess it was happening on both sides, but not to the, inf not to the commercial success that Sabbath had when they hit the, hit the, hit the, um, streets, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, they're from, it, here's a connection. I don't know if you want to talk about connections. Well, let's do but... some connections now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, they're from Birmingham and we've right. talked about Birmingham a lot on this podcast. Yeah. The Moody Blues. One of your favorite albums. Yeah. The Moody Blues album? No. Uh, um, ELO. 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 The Move. Yeah. Robert Plant and John Bonham. Dave Mason. Traffic. All those guys were from the Birmingham area. And yeah. now, now uh, Black Sabbath. Um, I don't know if Jam has any connections. I've got another one. I got one. Uh, ELO. Bev Bavan was the drummer for Black Sabbath at one point. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, I did not know that. How about this one out of the blue? Willie Nelson. You would, got you like, me. would you like to hear more? <laughs> so, um, Tony Iommi, who's the guitarist for Black Sabbath, lost his fingers in an industrial accident. <laughs> I know where we're going. And uh, and he was going to give up playing the guitar, and the manager of that of that factory played him a Django Reinhardt album and said, this guy doesn't have, have any fingers on his left hand either. I think you can figure this out. And it inspired him just like Willie was inspired by Django Reinhardt. Yeah. Well, it's and, Willie said he never could be as good as Django because he had too many fingers. Right. And so Tony Iommi ended up like making little um, tips. Yeah. He first started making them with metal and then he started making them with leather because they could grip the string. So if you watch him play in an interview, he's got false fingertips on his left hand. But yeah, Django Reinhardt, who influenced 
Willie Nelson influenced Tony Iommi immensely. Huh. Wow. Yeah. This is something I regret not knowing when we talked about it. Tony Iommi played guitar with Jethro Tull. Is that right? Was the I guitar- can hear that. He was the guitarist yeah. with Jethro Tull before Martin Barr. In fact, I'll put this on the website. He was with them long enough to play on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus TV show. The clip of Jethro Tull really? on that show has Tony Iommi playing guitar with him. So that'll be on the website. Huh. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Tony, what are the origins of this particular heavy metal band? Well, um... They actually started from two separate bands at the time. One was a band called Mythology that had Tony Iommi, the guitarist, and the drummer Bill Ward in it. They were they were a blues rock band. You know, uh, they also had a guy named Chris Smith as a singer and Neil Marshall on bass. They they broke up because they were all four arrested for possession of cannabis resin, and uh, <laughs> after that arrest, they couldn't keep things going. So. Uh, Tony Iommi and Bill Ward are looking for something to do. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, the singer of Sabbath, and the bassist, Geezer Butler, were in a band called Rare Breed, although Geezer was the guitarist for Rare Breed at the time. Um, It was a psychedelic band, of all things. The members would paint their faces up. Geezer says, I, I love listening to these guys talk about their first bands. He says, we were never asked back to play ever any place we played. <laughs> so it was obvious we were horrible. <laughs> but um, they end up uh, joining forces um, because Ozzy places an ad in a window of a music shop that says, Ozzy Zig needs gig. Now, why you would answer that, I don't know. I don't but, know, yeah. But anyway, so um, Tony Iommi and Bill Ward end up meeting Geezer and Ozzy. And they start a band called the Polka Tolk Blues Band, which was named after the type of talcum powder that Ozzy's mom used. <laughs> the band also included two other members, this guy named Alan Clark on saxophone and a guy named Jimmy Phillips on bo- bottleneck slide guitar. And wow. because Tony Iommi was in the band, Geezer switched to bass. So that's how he became a bassist. Um, uh, they were a bit short-lived as well. Because I only thought Phillips screwed around too much in rehearsal, and they all thought if they were going to have one horn, they needed a whole horn section. And since they couldn't do that, they kicked both of them out and ended up being a four-piece, which they renamed themselves at that time as the Earth Blues Company, and then later shortened it to Earth in 1968. Um, and they, again, played kind of a straightforward blues rock heavy influence by Zeppelin and Cream and the John Mayall Blues Breakers, but they were a lot more as obvious by when we start talking about this album, a lot more riff-based. Um, and then, as I mentioned, in 68, Iommi left Earth, went and played with Toll for a little while. He didn't like the direction that that uh, that band was going, so he went back to Earth, hmm. <laughs> so to speak. He returned to Earth <laughs> and uh, and ended up being, uh, you know, they ended up going. Here, here's something really kind of cool. They got a gig... At the Star Club. You know what that... You guys know what the Star Club is. I've heard of it, but I can't... Offhand in the Reeperbahn in Hamburg, Germany. Oh, where those... Where, uh, the Beatles play a lot? the Beatles played a lot. Yeah. And it was the same sort of thing. They played seven 40-minute sets a day, starting at noon and finishing at 2 a.m. The difference between the Beatles and Sabbath was... Uh, well, they were Earth at this time. They didn't know very many songs, so they would do these long, extended jams. They would play <laughs> one, maybe two songs in that 40 minutes, or they would just jam stuff. And evidently, you know, there'd be three people in the audience, sometimes a prostitute, a juggler, <laughs> just all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but... Um, they continue to define their sound and they get 
more dissident and they start using the tritone. So yeah, uh, the, that's the what they call it—the devil's chord. Chord, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking at it here. It's the has an augmented fourth and a diminished fifth, or it's got an augmented fourth in it. Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of a, a eerie sounding chord. It's used a lot in jazz, but yeah, I guess it's uh, something that that they would use. be. It's non eerie. Yeah. Well. In Latin, it's called Diablos in Musica, which means the devil in music. And and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because outside of the eerie, unsettling feeling it evidently gives people, mm-hmm. it's also evidently really difficult. It's a difficult thing to use it to sing in particular. Huh. And so it was avoided a lot. So that it's kind of like this combination of this Latin term talking about the difficulty of it and the fact that it makes people feel unsettled when they hear it. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, it, they, when they say difficulty, they're talking about singing to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, it wasn't it wasn't used um, a really. I mean, this was in the Middle Ages. That term was established, and it wasn't used again really until the 18th century. Huh. So, um, in in popular music at the time, um, the song on Sabbath. Black Sabbath's debut, the title track, Black Sabbath, really uses it to good effect. So, um, this, this came, that particular song came about because, uh, I only, who's not trained in any sort of music theory, he and geezer are sitting around listening to all things, Gustav Holst, the planets oh, and, oh, they, really? and they hear Mars, the bringer of war. And so he was trying to imitate that on guitar. That sounds exactly like it. Um, I can't believe that was a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, they're they're still Earth at this time, um, and this song they're playing this song. Um, the lyric the, <laughs> no, juxtaposed to well, the, the re- song Mars. The reason I Earth. say this, yeah, the reason I say they're still called Earth is because the song that we were playing is Black Sabbath. They start playing this the song, the lyrical content, which is based on a vision that geezer butler had when he of this apparition appearing at the foot of his bed he told ozzy about it ozzy wrote these lyrics about it and um and they decided to name the song after this boris karloff film called black sabbath and the crowd starts really liking it it starts attracting um the crowd gets into it in a way that they haven't other things they've been playing so they feel like they're onto something in terms of this kind of spookiness and they start to get noticed as well from record labels. Um, but 
a familiar story we talk about a lot. There's another band called Earth in the UK. <laughs> and Sabbath decides, eh, they don't really like that name anyway. It's not really fitting with what they're doing now. So yeah. they decide to name themselves after the song. So they change their name to Black Sabbath. Hmm. And then go into the studio, record their debut. They do it in a day. They just set up in the studio, play live, knock it out. Um, they're signed to Phillips Record. Um, Phillips Records. They release a single before their debut called "Evil Woman," which was um, a cover song of the American band Crow. Um, wow. I don't know if you guys know that song or not. But the evil woman. No, not that. <laughs> um, and then they release their they release their um, debut uh, a month later. Um, in November of 69 is when they started recording, like I said, in a single session. Wow. Um, the only effects on the album are from the, on the very first song, Black Sabbath, there's like thunder and rain. It's the only effects on it. Huh. Um, it was released, it was released on Friday the 13th in 1970. <laughs> um, it ends up reaching number eight in the UK. Wow. And wow. here's what's funny about this. The band is back in the UK after playing gigs overseas and they hear a disc jockey talking about this band. They hear a disc jockey talking about this album by Black Sabbath charting. And they're all thinking, oh, we're going to have to change our names again. There's another <laughs> Black Sabbath out there. They had no idea the album was doing that well until they got back wow. to the UK. Um, yeah. And it, it really hit a nerve with a bunch of people. And, Did it uh, have a hit? Um. Well, the single on it was the was the Wizard, which is a you know kind of a blues song. There's a harmonica in it, and just Ozzy describing you know this <laughs> wizardy thing. So, um, NIB is probably the most popular song off of it, um, but uh, and it's been covered by a number of people. Huh. Um, but I think you know, like I said before, I think the reason it's probably spoke to people is we're talking about an era where. You know, the Vietnam War was kind of at its peak and people were feeling disillusioned about stuff. In the UK, things were looking really bleak in terms of jobs and things of that nature. And and there's just all this doom and gloom feeling with a lot of people at the turn of the decade. Is this is there a response to the summer of love and the hippie thing? Or is this uh, have nothing to do with that? No, I think this is exactly because I think if you look at if you look at what's happening pop culturally at the time, and historically, you've got Altamont, which was a horrible thing where yeah. the where those bikers get those Hell's Angels get on stage and stab a guy. You've got the Manson murders happening as well. I mean, things just that this whole summer of love thing seems to be just a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. And so people start feeling uh like I said, just not the things are not going well the, the way that they were they promised it would they go. They don't want to put flowers in their hair. Not anymore. Not yeah. anymore. Uh, so anyway, um, that brings us basically to the production of the album we're talking about tonight. They they don't take a whole lot of time to follow up on their debut. They head back in the studio in four months, um, and they took a similar approach to recording this. They did it in in a couple of days. Um, I, I want to say a couple of things before we start talking about the songs. One is, I know you guys would probably disagree with me, but I think this I think I think I don't think this band gets enough credit um, for what they do. I think they've got some chops. I think they hide it a lot in some of the stuff they do, sure. but I think it also pops out every now and then. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with who these guys were individually influenced by. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, Bill Ward listened to count Basie, the drummer hmm. geezer was a Zappa fan from early, early on. Huh. Um, and actually Zappa was a Sabbath fan from early, early on too, which is kind of interesting. interesting. As I mentioned before, 
uh, Tony Omi was a big Django Reinhardt guy. And Ozzy, of all things, I know this is going to be hard to believe, was a mod at one point who listened to, <laughs> to American R&B and in particular loved Sam and Dave. Huh. So I think all of that um, has an influence on it, it, it. You can't hide that. It starts coming out in their music from place to place. Yeah. They, um, you know, listening to this album, I, I did recognize that there was more chop they had they were better musicians than I well that's what i was going to ask you jam as the only musician in the band who actually can play something besides a bass um (laughs) where where do you rank these guys as far as their their uh, playing ability um to really say that because they, they are coming out of something totally they're doing something i think that's pretty um unique unique and um i think tony iomi he's a much listening to this album yeah i I give him some pretty good marks because he is he is original i'm not sure that a lot of guys were playing guitar like he was playing one of the things i noticed that he was he does on this album is he uh doubles he does a lot of double tracked guitar and he will actually like play the same solo um in just two different takes of it um, Bill Ward, the drummer, is pretty. He, he's got a great sense of time. He's got a great right foot for that hi hat. Um, you know that's pretty interesting. And uh, Geezer Butler, he's a passable I, bass player. I mean, I, I need to ask you a question about yeah. Geezer. Uh, I, I get. I'm not going to talk about whether where he ranks talent wise. Okay, but I don't think there's another bassist that sounds like him. His bass, and I don't know what it is, it sounds like it's being played underwater. Yeah, it does sound like that. And it sounds... Um, one of the things that I... A lot of heavy metal albums, especially album, the early... Is it the mix with the... Something about the mix is always what thin they put the, what, what is it? They have the upside down... They have the U or the hill top. What, they do one of them. I can't figure I think they do the, the hill top. We're talking about well. on a uh, yeah. on a uh, equalizer. 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 Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the other way. They do the the you. They, so does that high. pull that pulls all the high out of it? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, it's, but it's. Yeah. I, I still. I. I mean, even outside of that, it's it's got a bizarre kind of roundness to it that literally sounds like it's play, being played underwater, and I don't know what that yeah, is. Yeah, I think that there's at some point. I know that they're using a Leslie cabinet on some of the songs, um, and there's a couple of things where I do definitely are doing something with the uh, with the tape um there's a part where it and we'll get to it when we're talking about it, but there's a part where it sounds like he's playing a digital delay but so yeah the 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 production sounds kind of a lot of heavy metal albums from this time sounded pretty thin now another thing that i think happened it was this the version that i was listening to was the remastered version so it definitely sounds a little like I could pick out the instruments more. I remember listening to when I heard this album, you know, it was a cassette. Well, that, deck that's and, what you used and, to tell yeah. me. One of the things you hated about Sabbath, I remember this distinctly, was you said yeah. it's just sludgy. Yeah. It's like it's sludge, sludge rock. Just, and I it think just sounds it doesn't like, sound that way to me at all. I, I am almost a, f- a fresh pair of ears on this. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by all the space. I didn't expect that. Um, with my, when I stereotype this type of music, <laughs> I expect every little bit to be um, covered up. I expect a lot of stacking vocals, a lot of stacking everything. And yeah. uh, I just was really surprised by the space. And you could 
uh, this is a funny way to describe this album, but I think if I were a guitar teacher, I might use this as a way to teach kids to play um, uh, individual leads and not um, not necessary chords. But the 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 playing the guitar playing isn't so complicated that a, a person would never have a chance to do it. Right. But it's very interesting what he's doing, and uh, yeah. I, I enjoy. I actually enjoyed following the guitar. Um, I, I think he's. Um, I think for people who aren't familiar with this kind of music, and maybe even people who are, when they say, "Oh, he's a rock god, he's a guitar god," I don't think there's enough people that think about Tony Iommi in the way that he should be thought about because he's he knows his way around the instrument. He's a lot more talented than I think. And what I mean by that is I think he can play a lot more complicated stuff than he does on this. I think he's doing exactly what the songs are calling for. On yeah, well, I appreciate that, of course. Yeah. And I don't hear him bend very much. Is that- no, he doesn't bend very much at all. I, I, that's, that's one thing I, I noticed. Um, one thing, you know, we were talking about power chords, and this is a problem that I have with most heavy metal. They don't play a whole chord. It's almost always just like the top three strings or the, the you know, they, it's very rare that they will hit all six strings. And I've seen so many heavy metal bands, you know, growing up that, and I, you know, every time you would try to play in a band in high school it, and inevitably the guitar player wanted to be like Eddie Van Halen or somebody, and which just always was like, you would say, Hey, what key are we in? And they wouldn't even be able to tell you, you know, because it would just, it's not that they were necessarily bad players but they just the the it a chord to them was just like huh it, you know <laughs> well the, the the technology by this time made it possible to yeah. get a big fat sound out of just two strings yeah yeah so that's and that's one of the things i can't that when i thought of sabbath they to me were the quintessential power chord power, band. Uh, yeah power chord band and um and devil chords and devil chords <laughs> well and, and here's here's the other thing i just wanted to say before we dive in um the, and again maybe a funny look from the two of you i find a similarity between this album and the talking heads album because both bands lay down a groove or in this case with sabbath it's a riff <laughs> yeah and then they just ride it through the song i mean is there a is there another band that's as riff heavy as black sabbath is i i don't know um but I, I hear what you're saying about that. The, uh, you know, the thing that uh, we we were talking about the players, and we we left somebody out. Um, <laughs> they have a lead vocalist, <laughs> and there it's a very unusual voice. Yeah, uh-huh. and it pairs really well with this kind of. Uh, music they're playing yeah if you said earlier that the devil chord is hard to sing to it's like this voice was made for that and i don't know what i'm talking about when i say his voice is perfect for this i can't describe it that. almost sounds there's band guys we talked about that sound like this before peter gabriel's one of them um uh phil collins where it almost sounds like they've got double tracked vocals already is there's it well, that's with, true with uh, ozzy osbourne there's like a, a helium element to it as well i think well it, i mean i'm not not trying that to be disparaging i, I it's just that there is just some sort of airy quality to his voice that i think 
lends itself perfect to this genre of music. They constructed these songs very organically. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Geezer Butler, the bassist, is the main lyricist. Ozzy wrote yeah. a couple of lyrics, but Geezer wrote most of the lyrics. And Ozzy was in charge of writing the the melody, the singing the melody over whatever the band was playing. Right. And <laughs> he admits this, that at times when he couldn't figure out a melody, he would just sing the riff. So there's songs on this album yeah. where he's singing the riff and it works well, for yeah, some reason. I, Iron you know? Man. Iron Man, definitely. <laughs> and and it works. And it's it's weird that I mean, again, there's a lot of sort of I don't want to say simple. I'm going to use this term instead. There's a lot of non-complexity to these songs. And I think they're structured that way on purpose. And um, for me, at least, it it works really, really well with what they're trying to do. Um, you know. So I agree. They, yeah, ahead, yeah. No, I, 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 you were saying there's a lot of space in there. That's, you know, a lot of times with like speed metal and, and those guys, like they try to put every riff they possibly can into the song, you know, and, and, but with this genre of heavy metal, with this early stage of it, I almost, I almost always want more. There just always seems like there's stuff missing and, this album is kind of no exception. And we'll get to a couple of parts where I would say, hey, I really would like some more instrumentation on this. But also going to the Ozzy singing the riff, a lot of heavy metal bands did that as well. You know, if you uh, like Deep Purple, it just seems like there was uh, like. Uh, Smoke on the yeah, water. Yeah, smoke on the water is definitely yeah. him singing the riff. Yeah, um, there, it seems like that was going on a lot during this time. Well, and the and the other thing is, I'll just say this. I sort of said it before, but I think that the one of the reasons I think this works for me is that none of these guys are trying to. There's not a whole lot of showing off on this. No, there's not. No, and there's not. what JM said about uh, heavy metal is a um, doing that the fast uh, um, the fast scales yeah, over yeah. and over again and all of the all of the speed stuff to show off that, that that's absent on here mm -hmm. yeah and of course that's one of the things i dislike about this genre so much is all the guitar flash that yeah. they do that yeah. in my mind isn't what a good guitar player is uh speed is just one thing right um yeah. but on ozzy's voice i've got another question i don't think anybody's saying anything like this before uh, this band came out. I can't think of a singer that sounds anything like no. Ozzy does. Uh -uh. But I do think people have tried to imitate it yeah. a lot yep. after um, after he did, uh, became popular. Yeah. Of course, and, I'm talking about a genre I don't know about. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. So that's why I said one of the reasons I picked this album is this band is so influential for everything that came after it. It's one of those yeah. band, one of those foundation bands. They may not have been the first. But they're the maybe the most important. Yeah. What would would I be wrong to say that Ozzy and um, Robert Plant may be the guys influencing most of the heavy metal? I think so yep. because you I know you got right. Plant screaming and yell, you know, singing, yelling all that stuff, and you know Ozzy Osbourne doesn't do any of that. He just sings the the song. I mean, he he's, does he sound like he's scolding sometimes while he's singing? <laughs> yeah, dang it, with his finger out. <laughs> he does. Well, it's that kind of. Uh, I think the the music. Uh, in a weird way calls for that sort of, um, yeah. right. The, the way the the, um, the way he's singing in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Well, are you fellas ready to talk about this album? Sure. Um, I guess we were talking about 
uh, the album a little bit. Uh, the first song on this album is War Pigs. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning well, I think I just mentioned scolding. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so I, I love this song so much. It's a good song. <laughs> is, this, is this one of the ones that you think might be uh, oh something to King Crimson? Uh, not, not really. There's one song in particular I do, but I guess I could see that. I... Uh, that intro to this song, as simple as it is, and is as um, I want to even say as um, it's not groundbreaking at all. No, the the donut and the but it's I love I love everything about it. I love the the guitar coming in. I love yeah. the drums. I love Ozzy's vocals. I love the little noodling thing at the. I love everything about that. <laughs> it is it is so great for me to listen. I, I just, do you hear I, his fingers on the string and part of it? Oh, dude, I, heard I, I hadn't urt. heard that. A yeah. little urt. Yeah, yeah. And then when I the groove never of this... never hear that anymore. <laughs> when the groove of this song kicks in, it's, in my opinion, great as well. I, yeah. Again, there's nothing out of the ordinary happening here. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right about scolding. It's an anti-war song, and I know how much you love songs. <laughs> well, somebody, finally songs. someone did an anti-war song. There's so many pro-war <laughs> songs, it's just not fair. Well, for a song about war, I, I'm not sure you can do much better. I mean, it really, the lyrics, the, uh, just the, the way that it, uh, I got the wrong song, I guess. <laughs> no, it's a, it's just a, talks about, uh, I mean, of course, yeah, it's anti-war and all that, but just some of the description of the of war actually happening and the way that the music is behind it and just kind of the Ozzy Osbourne sounds angry, but at the same time is much, just flabbergasted by what he's seeing when he's well. The thing the that uh, the thing that bothers me about um, these war protest songs is they simplify it. Like these bad people who aren't like me, yeah, are out there, and they're someone's getting rich doing this, and uh, they don't care about all the people dying like I do. And it's so sophomoric that well, it, it's. Well, of course, we're talking about a heavy metal album, so I don't have to apply that to this because I don't take very much of it seriously. Yeah. But um, it's, yeah, war's bad. We know. Thank you. Well, you know, this song wasn't originally an anti-war song. Oh, was it? It, it was originally called Valpurgis, and it was named after this um, holiday in the Netherlands and in Germany uh, that has some occultish connotations to it. Um Geezer is a big Dennis Wheatley fan or was a big Dennis Wheatley fan. And he wrote all these occult books and there's a book called the devil rides out, which is about this Valpurgis night. 
And it's, it's these, these sinners want to unleash Satan onto the world and they get scared doing it and they run to a priest and then the priest end up evidently end up, ends up getting thrown into hell. Supposedly that's the story behind it. <laughs> huh. But the record company said, you're not singing a song like that. <laughs> and then Geezer said, well, you know who the real Satanists are? War the war, mothers, <laughs> the yeah. masters of war, so to speak. Well, so we can blame the, the record companies for this one. <laughs> um, yeah, and so they start. They changed it, and that's why this was going to be the name of the album. That's why the cover of the album looks the way it is because <laughs> I think it's hilarious. But that's a war pig on the cover of the album. It's a guy with a shield and a sword, a sword, yeah, a sword so- unleashed, and he's coming at you. And it was originally going to be called War Pigs. The album was, uh-huh. um, but we'll get to why it, it, it yeah. wasn't. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's the funny thing about this is that <laughs> geezer is adamant. This is, this is an anti-Vietnam song. And Ozzy's like, we didn't know anything about Vietnam. It was just an anti-war <laughs> song. We didn't care about that. Um, but, but I want to, I want to speak to this. This, this seems like a, as good a place of any to talk about the whole idea of this band being a satanic band. Okay. okay? The lyrics of this and the last part of this song say, and they're talking, he's talking about the war pigs. He says, day of judgment, God is calling on their knees, the war pigs crawling, begging, begging mercy for their sins. Sa- Satan laughing spreads his wings. That is not, they're not applauding what's happening. No. So that would make them anti-Satan. Yeah. If they're anti-war, they're anti-Satan. That's right. So, I think the reason people think that, and I'm a pretty good person to use for this because I don't know anything. Okay. Uh, I think it's because... Um, the name Black Sabbath. Uh, that sounds <laughs> well, yeah. But when you realize they're just named after an old Boris Karloff, I was movie, just about you know? to yeah. say. Once I found out what their name, where their name com- comes from, and you see the cheesy poster yeah. from the movie, you go, "Oh, this <laughs> is pretty no harmless." Idea. And then, and then the bit about biting uh, the heads off of uh, bats, you find out that was an accident. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasn't there about this time? Everybody is finding Satanism and everything. Yeah, and the Rolling they, Stones they were, helped and push that along a little yeah. bit. They, they were, and there's, and we'll talk about it towards the end of this discussion. I want to do want to briefly mention the Satanic Panic. Um, I don't view people like this as committed to anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a that's a valid point. I think uh, you know the thing that always I always find slightly amusing when I when I look at documentaries or sort of modern day interviews with these guys is they're they're just they're not ex- at all outside of ozzy who's a mess uh bill ward geezer, geezer butler Bell, tony Hanomi are just they're like they're like british gentlemen when yeah. they're talking you know yeah. and it's just really funny i remember that watching funny. i remember watching a, a documentary about iron maiden with my wife and they all they're uh, they're in between shows and they go off and play golf and Lindsay's like what it's like yeah <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> exactly so it's just kind of a funny thing yeah. um the instrumental outro to the song luke's yeah. wall is only listed that way in the u.s release oh really yeah the uk release just this was just war pigs they didn't huh. have a separate listing for the musical outro going out yeah. huh. um yeah. which is the I was just going to say the uh, the outro is named after um, it's an homage to two of the ba- the band's two man road crew Jeff Luke Lucas and Spock Wall. Well, thank you for introducing us to that wonderful, beautiful war song. <laughs> Up next, we have Paranoid. <laughs> Thank you. 
a hit, Tony? This is a hit. That's the most Ozzy Osbourne sound singing I, I can think of. <laughs> is that the most Ozzy sounding uh, singing there is? Uh, maybe. Maybe The one is. about the train. Oh, Crazy Train, which is such a great song. Yeah, it's a good song. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe. You know, uh, again, he's kind of uh, singing over the riff on this. You know, this song was not supposed to be on the album. That's right. It was, uh, they needed a song for the album. Yeah, they needed they just, to fill up the space. Yeah, and they wrote it in like two hours or something like that. Less than that, supposedly really? in 30 minutes. Uh, Bill Ward says the song came out really fast. Um, One thirty in the afternoon, Tony Alamy lays down the riff. By 2 o'clock, it's done exactly how you hear it on the record. Really? So 30 minutes. Wow. Um, you know, Ozzy, Ozzy and Geezer didn't want this to be on the album because they thought it sounded, and they're right, a lot, too much like Communication Breakdown. And it does sound like, it does sound like Communication Breakdown. <laughs> but, but Tony Iommi convinced them otherwise, huh. and they put it on. It was released as a single, as you mentioned, Doug. It was a hit, but the band didn't want it released. It was released um, without their permission really? in the UK. Huh. Yes. Um, and, uh, and the funny thing about that is it ends up, um, it ends up hitting number four, I think in the, in the UK on UK wow. charts. So it's, it's the first black Sabbath single released in the UK and it, and, uh, and it's the only Sabbath single released in the UK. They didn't want it released. The record company insisted on it. It reached number four in the UK and number 61 in the U S um, in fact, they're on record in an interview in Record Mirror magazine in 1971 saying that they ban all future singles and that Paranoid would be their last, which is not that unusual. Pink Floyd didn't put out singles. Zeppelin Zepp didn't put out singles. Yeah. So it doesn't make that – it's not that big a deal. But they didn't want to be labeled as a singles band, even though this thing was such a huge hit. Mm -hmm. um, who, so, who, who do you think wrote the lyrics? Geezer Butler wrote the lyrics. Yeah. How old was he when he wrote this? Um, I don't know, but here's something that might help you understand why the lyrics are the way they are. He was suffering de from depression. He's writing about his depression, but he didn't know the difference between depression and paranoia. So that's why it's called huh. par paranoia. Right. I'm glad to know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's too late for him. I, I always think it's, uh, I've, I've known several people in their twenties talking about how they've already ruined their life. Yeah. And when you get old as we are, that just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing that was a little bit of a bone of consternation, if you will, is that the producer put a, um, he added a ring modulation on the solo and Tony Iommi hated it and yeah. still hates it. He thought it was, he ruined the solo. What is a, what's a ring modulation? It's a, it's an effect that kind of, they use it a lot in synthesizers. A ring modulator actually uh, combines two sound waves together and makes them modulate. Uh, yeah, makes them uh, either compressed or uh, yeah, usually compresses them. So it gives it makes the uh, it has kind of the same effect. It brings out more. T it makes the sound song sound fuller or note sound fuller. Kind of a an overtone that you that, so you have the the one note and then you have an overtone. I, I think with a couple of tweaks, this could be a Ramon song. <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're I, saying. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I hear yeah. the Ramones sometimes well, when I'm listening to this. Yeah. So. It's that it's that um there's not a a, a wide range. It's just no. following the rift, as you said. Yeah. And the um, rift's not going anywhere. It's just staying in the same range. Here's two interesting things about it. Tony Iommi recorded this with a black eye because they had gotten in a fight with a bunch of skinheads at some point, which we'll talk about later in the album. But I just want to mention that the, when this is a result of that fight, he's got a black eye when he's recording yeah. this. And did you guys know, there's a question, 
that in Finland, it's customary to yell, play paranoid at a live band in the same way that idiots in the U.S. yell, oh, free, free bird. bird. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Yes. Well, Where is that? In Finland. Uh. Well, yeah. Too bad we don't have a single fan there. <laughs> Maybe we will when, when this yeah. comes out. When I think of heavy metal, mm -hmm. this song is almost always the song that comes into my head. Really? And, yeah, I think because the 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 subject matter, um, the way that it's played, the drums are are heavy on it. Uh, the vocals are again that kind of eerie sounding well it's definitely the fastest song on the album yeah would you say yeah i would say so i get anyway. that i mean it's it's one of those quintessential heavy metal songs i mean this was a big hit for them um and uh and it yeah it's got that yeah. feel to it i get that yeah well up next planet caravan <laughs> You imagine people who bought this album, they hear War Pigs, they hear Paranoid, they're ready for the next, yeah. we're going to knock it out of the park, and then comes Planet Caravan. I really like this song a lot. It's my a favorite lot. song on the album. It, I may, think be it, it may be mine, mine too, as well. Yeah. And, um, uh, this is funny, because uh, <laughs> when I say we left the genre, because I really think we have, it, this is like psychedelic. Yeah. Well, and, you, you, and it reminds me of songs I really, really love. That we will be talking about not too far in the future. <laughs> you, you, you can't forget that um, one of the foundational aspects of Sabbath is they were a stoner band. And and they come from that that sort of background. So it's not surprising that they made a song like this, except yeah. for people who didn't know that about them. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned using a Leslie speaker. That's what Ozzy's singing through right. on this. Yeah. That gives that kind of eerie feel to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, the the piano part on it is played by Tom Allen, who was the album's engineer. Yeah. Tony Iommi plays a flute mm -hmm. on this song. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you guys know what it's about, right? I couldn't uh, understand what they were talking about. <laughs> well, that's not not that difficult to <laughs> say that. Um, Geezer says it's about. The ultimate date. You're with your loved one and you're floating through the <laughs> Like uh, Lois Lane and Superman in yeah. that movie. Can you read my mind? Um, there's a bit of a Texas connection to this in that um, Texas's own Pantera, which is was a heavy metal band out of yeah. the DFW area, uh, recorded a, a cover of this. I do want to talk a, real quick about the um, the guitar bit at, in it. Yeah. I, I just think that showcases that, you know, he's got yeah. a bit of a, a light touch when he wants to. Yeah. And and I love that guitar. The way that guitar plays out, it's just too. great. Yeah. It's, it's great. That's it's, another reason it's funny to find a song that uh, fits into one of the types of music I love so much yeah. right here in the middle of uh, Paranoid. And... <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I am Iron Man. 
Yeah, the next song, Iron Man. Um, there's, <laughs> I have a house full of children, and we were watching one of the Marvel things with huh. somebody destroying the, someone's destroying the world every time I watch one of those shows. And what's the Thanos? Mm-hmm. He goes, I am inevitable. And then Tony goes, I am Iron Man. Do you guys know what the song's about? Not at all. It's somebody that's half robot and half human or something? I will tell you because... <laughs> Is it going to be funny? <laughs> You'll, there's no way you would have gotten this from the lyrics. So when, when Tony Alami came up with that riff, um, uh, I think Bill Ward, maybe it was Geezer, and Ozzy are walking around, and Ozzy's like, you know that riff you just came up? Sounds like a big old iron bloke stomping around. And so... It was called Iron Bloke for a little while, which I think is an infinitely funnier <laughs> name. But uh, would not not would not have worked with Marvel. No, but it was uh, it inspired uh, Geezer to write the lyrics to it. And so what it is, what it is about is a man who travels through time to warn the world about its impending destruction, which he witnessed. As he's traveling through time, he goes through some magnetic storm, and he's turned into iron. As a result, the world ostracizes him and does not want to listen to his warning. And so he gets angry and destroys the world. So he is the catalyst for the destruction he witnessed traveling back through time. It's like a Mobius. That's hard it's to like do. a Mobius. Trip. It almost sounds like, yeah, uh, like somebody giving the backstory to a character so they can understand their well, motivation. You know what it reminds me of on a much smaller scale is like, you know, I, I'm, I, it's no secret. I'm a fan of progressive rock albums and a lot of those are concept albums. And you can listen to those and not have an idea what the concept is unless you read the liner notes. You're like, Oh, here's, this is what the story is. Cause yeah. the lyrics don't have anything to do with it. <laughs> um, this is, this has got to be the mo- one of the most recognizable riffs in rock and roll. Right. I think oh, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody that plays guitar learns to play some yeah, variation this... of that. I guess he's playing probably two notes on that deal. Yeah. And I think most people learn to play just the uh, E string. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and yeah, this one and uh, Smoke on the Water are probably. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're right. Smoke on the Water is awesome. But as, as we mentioned earlier, this is Ozzy just singing along to the. I mean, he's not doing yeah. anything other than singing to the riff that's being played. Um, you know, but he's got that doom in his voice again. He yeah. does. It's like, well, it's a big iron bloke marching around. He's got to <laughs> sing like it. Um, supposedly, there's some speculation about how he came up with a weird vocal uh, thing on "I Am Iron Man." Yeah, I've always wondered how he did that. So the band says he just sang into or set it into an oscillating fan. I could believe that. But other well, people we used to do that at camp. Yeah. Yeah. Other people say no, no, no. They put a ring modulator on his voice or did something. But the band swears he just. And in fact, so much so that when the song was used for what is it? Uh, what's that video game? Um, guitar. Oh, Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero. Yeah. That they to do it, they used the exact. They bought supposedly the same exact style fan to do it. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, whatever. I don't believe anybody knows what fan that was. I, I'm <laughs> So, um, this was not released as a single in the UK, as I mentioned before, they wouldn't do it, but it was, it was a second single in the U S and it hit number 52 is their highest ranking single. Um, and probably their most recognizable song, I would think. Oh yeah. I mean, paranoid's the kind of what people think about, but in terms of if you were to ask anybody, Hey, do you know black Sabbath? They're going to say, Oh, Uh, the iron man band. Yeah. Um, so that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of side A, and now we flip it over, and we have 
Electric funeral. Electric funeral. That sounds like a really good um, iron vomit title. That's almost Sorry, like, like a, a uh, yeah. that reminds me of something kids would say in the playground. So the, <laughs> a, cu- a couple of things, uh, this, the beginning of this always reminded me of that sound effect when the slee stack showed up and landed the loss. <laughs> Tony gets us back to Land of the Lost one more time. <laughs> it always reminded me of that. Um, I've forgotten that sound. Yeah, it's of like course. I, haven't heard I quit watching years. that when I was a kid. Yeah. I didn't so, see it. So it's night. obvious what this song's about. Yeah. Slee stack? No, it's about <laughs> nuclear holocaust. <laughs> it's about a nuclear holocaust. And are this, they against that also? Yeah, oh, yeah, they are. They're so um, brave. I, I think they're just describing it. Um, this is the song that reminds me of 21st Century Schizoid Man, and mainly the middle part of the song. Yeah. If, if you guys recall, the middle part of the song has that kind of crazy... Um, some of that underwater bass plan you talked yeah. about yeah and yeah. that just sounds like that middle bit of um 21st century schizoid man i mean it does obviously 21st century schizoid man has got more talented musicians behind <laughs> it and, and that's not an insult to sabbath no. but i mean you've got you know some amazing players and well, king crimson well you got i like the little the fuzz uh, wah-wah guitar. You don't hear that very often. Usually when you have a wah-wah guitar, it's pretty clean, I, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I, that's pretty interesting. And he's got it on both channels, which is, again, again, he's double-tracking his guitar. This is pretty much, to me, a quintessential heavy metal song. This song's great, I yeah, think. I, mean, I love this song. I love yeah. I love how it starts off, and, you're, and to, to go to your thing about Ozzy sort of lecturing or whatever, it's that same sort of thing, and then it hits that middle bit, which I just think is so great. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, we didn't talk about this at all, but they... What was happening with the drums on that middle bit? That, he's, that, double, he's like doing just double time, I think. But we, It's almost, no, is it 5-5? Five, five, it might be 5-4. I don't know. That's interesting. Well, they do, this is what I was going to say that. is that the, the band changes time signature um, throughout. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't go like... They they just usually go from one to another and then back to the same one. Yeah. But a lot of these songs on this album have a, a you know the middle bit of it is like a completely different song. Yeah, yeah. Um, that they fit in there and they've made it work. And it's some of the most exciting moments on the album are those things that are sandwiched between these two or these these riffs on either end. Yeah, where the band kind of lets go. They're smart enough to know that the little riff and the the song the tune maybe. Mm-hmm. It can't last by itself for very long. It needs yeah. a break. Right. And I, I think it's intelligent of them to do that. I think so too. But well, um, yeah, it, it's I, one of the more fascinating songs on the album. I think. Up next, track six, 
Hand of Doom. I'm surprised the word doom worked its way in here. <laughs> it was the bomb. I think this lyrically is the most interesting song. I think the the lyrics on this song are actually pretty good compared to some of the other lyrics. It's an anti-drug song, in particular an anti-heroin song. Huh. And um and if you if you think about the lyrics, it's exact. It, it what why I find it interesting is because it's got these two things. It's talking about why someone would do that, and it's sympathetic to the person's understanding world worldview on why they would do it. But not sympathetic to the choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like that, they the world is, according to Sabbath, is kind of falling around these people, uh, falling, you know, it's, it's being destroyed around them, and so there's this desire to zone out on heroin. But that's the wrong choice: is to shoot yourself up with heroin. Yeah. Well, and, we're going to visit this territory again soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I mean, just that one line, it's like, uh, what, what we just heard first, first it was the bomb, Vietnam, napalm, disillusionment. You push the needle in and then it goes to, Oh, you know, you must be blind to do something like this, to take the sleep you, that you don't know you're giving death a kiss. Oh, you little fool now. I mean, it's not saying it's okay. It's not, yeah. you know, yeah. um, so anyway, I just I find that really interesting that it's and supposedly it was inspired by all of these um, Vietnam vets coming to the UK and uh, and they would come back to the UK before they got shipped back to the US. And a lot of them were heroin addicts yeah, yeah. and it was making a lot of news at the time. And so uh, so they wrote a song about it. Yeah, the thing this is the song that I was thinking about where I thought that it needed more instrumentation like really yeah i when i heard heard this i was just thinking about what does this song need and, and i was listening to it again today and i it was it needs like a john lord big electric organ behind it uh hmm. deep purple I, organ player i could see that that organ. would stand out on this album quite a bit. i think yeah. i think the middle part is one of my favorite parts of the album I just I love the way Ozzy sings on that. I love how it kicks in because the, the again the ends of it are so plodding and sort of not to sound silly doom filled. Yeah, and then it gets to that point where it's it really is that middle part really is lecturing somebody who's a heroin addict or using heroin. But that I love that riff and the guitar bit in it, yeah. and I love the dr- I love the drums on this particular song. I just think this, yeah, that's this is one I but I, that middle part I, that's just where I. Just, you want more. I want more. I want mm. that. That's the part where I just think that organ just would have well, really made I, a difference. One of the things I like about this album is that there's not more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm talking about a full sound. No. Oh, yeah. Not uh, that you hate it, so you, you're glad it's less. The uh, What kind of drugs did they use while they were lecturing people about heroin? They were, at this point in their career, they were they were drinking and smoking dope and probably hash. I would think. Yeah. Um, I think later on, cocaine made its way into 
I don't know. I don't know. I I I, I claim what, what happened to Ozzy where he's uh, on that TV show and he can't think anymore. Yeah, Ozzy. Well, Ozzy left the band. So, right. Um, and experimented with. Uh, I don't know if that's when it happened. I I believe the story is they kicked him out because of his drug use, the types of drugs he was using. I think all of them were maybe okay with a little bit of coke, but I think Ozzy was doing some other things that the rest of the band didn't find healthy. And, uh, you know, they end up getting one of the greatest heavy metal singers of all time to take his place, Ronnie James Dio. But, um, yeah, that's another story. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we do not recommend that we're on, we're in the same uh, camp as the Hand of Doom guy. Yep. We do not suggest that you do this you stuff. You stick the needle in. Because yeah. we... Everybody we talk about that's died, that's about half a, how half of them died. Yeah. Um, a beautiful song up next, Rat Salad. <laughs> And there's no words. No words. No, what does Ozzy do during that song? Uh, this one play the tambourine, I guess. Starts biting stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I This is my least favorite song in this album. I, I It's almost a drum solo. It, well, there are drum solos. I, can I say about this and the intro to the next song we're talking about, it's amazing to me that Ozzy and Geezer were so worried about the Zeppelin comparison on Paranoid mm-hmm. when this sounds very Zeppelin-y, and in particular when we talk about the next song, the intro to that is very Zeppelin-y. Yeah. I mean, maybe because it wasn't a blatant ripoff of a certain song like Paranoid is of Communication Breakdown, but still, I don't know. This is just, uh, I don't know. It just seems... Well, I, uh, I know why you say that the uh, uh, they sound that sound similar, but it doesn't occur to me without prodding that it was Zeppelin-onian. Ze- well, you, you know what else it reminds me of? You know that scene in Spinal Tap when... Uh, when uh, Nigel leaves and they're playing that outdoor festival and they do the jet, ja- they do the the jazz freeform Odyssey. jazz Odyssey. That this song kind of reminds me of that a little bit, <laughs> which that's is not funny. a good, which is no, not a good thing. That's not a good thing. I, this I don't know. I would have been okay if they had left this off and and quickly did something else along the paranoid lines. Yeah, I I think it's interesting, um, but you're not going to catch me running in coming home and putting it on because i need to hear it. uh yeah i i am in the same camp i a little bit of, this is the closest they get to look what i can do look what i can do it is yeah. and maybe that's what bothers me about it because it's kind of out of character yeah I, that's a good way to put it um it's and the drum solo is not really necessary but not many drum solos are well we leave uh rat salad and we're going to talk about fairies wear boots. Yeah, there's that intro, uh, the intro called Jack the Stripper, which was only listed on the U.S. album. And that, that sounds 
Zeppelin-y to me. I mean, it's not, obviously, oh, yeah. Zeppelin's doing other things, but it's very reminiscent. And again, yep. for them not yeah. to... But then, yeah, like I said, that was only, that was the only, it's on the album, the UK album, but it's only listed separately on the US album. And then you get to the main track, which is Fairies Wear Boots. I dig when that part kicks in, but it's very, very riff heavy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the the one that I was talking about earlier, where it they do that digital delay effect, even though it's I know there's no such the digital delay. I don't think was invented until '79, so they've got to be doing some sort of uh, tape effect there, which is um, kind of interesting. I know they had thing they had these tape machines that you could actually do that. Uh, effect with but they were expensive and they were notoriously they didn't work very well if they got heat overheated uh it's also got that double tracked guitar and i think they're using some ring modulation on that because it sounds like there's it's got almost a 12 string effect when he's doing the solo so it, it yeah it seems to me like it'd be a hard song to sing to because that riff has got yeah. a weird kind of jolting feel to yeah. it but Ozzy pulls it off. He does. This, I wouldn't be able it to. sounds like uh, they're upset with somebody. <laughs> they are. <laughs> this is the song that when I mentioned Ty- Tony Iommi having a black eye during the recording of Paranoid, uh, they got beaten up by a gang of skinheads after one of their shows uh, in 1970. And skinheads at that time weren't the skinheads we all think of. They were just a bunch of punks um, and anarchists. And uh, and they usually wore boots. So the title of the song, even though it, <laughs> Ozzy talks about seeing a dwarf and a fairy in his garden, it's really taking a shot at these skinheads and essentially calling them fairies. <laughs> Just to make sure they can get beat up after every show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the funny thing is that... Uh, the whole song doesn't really fit that theme. So a couple of things, Tony Iommi says that, you know, they, they were smoking a lot of dope. So that's probably where the lyrics kind of stray from that theme of talking about mm. the skinheads. And then Ozzy says the song is actually about acid. Um, but regardless of that, um, probably shouldn't put that right after lecturing everybody on <laughs> heroin to doom. Yeah. Um, but regardless of that, the, the more sort of uh, crystal thinking members of the band, uh, a, attribute this to being in a fight with a bunch of skinheads. And that brings us to the conclusion of this 41 minute, 51 second album. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of an interesting closer. I mean, it's got the time signature and it swings (laughs) and uh, beautiful way to end the album. (laughs) (laughs) We Uh, usually talk about this song is just perfect way to end. I I like very, very, I don't know which one up. I don't. I guess you could end with Iron Man since it's the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah, but I think this is a you know, a good way to end this album. I um, so. I you know talking about them kind of coming out of nowhere. This album was number twelve in the U.S. and charted for seventy weeks. Is that right? Reached number one in the U.K. Yeah. In a twenty-seven week run. Huh. So this was a monster for them. Yeah. It's so. <laughs> I I did not know that about that. I yeah. didn't know it was so popular. And uh, and it came out of nowhere, essentially. 
You know, you talk about things coming out of nowhere. I mean, it hit someone. Critics hated this album. Uh, What did they hate about it? Well, they hated the fact that it, oh, this is what Lester Banks said about it. (laughs) Said the band was a band of unskilled laborers who wrote inane (laughs) lyrics while playing doggerel tribute to Aleister Crowley. Um, (laughs) Rolling Stones critic at the time called it bubblegum Satanism. Again, these are people (laughs) who I don't think are really listening to at least the lyrics. they're, They're right about the lyrics, I think. What, that is bubblegum Satanism? No, that it's, uh, what, what was the first guy? What did he say? Inane, Inane. lyrics? Yeah. yeah I, uh, I think that's almost I think you're, ex- you're supposed to, right, if you're yeah. this kind of band? Well, it's yeah. a bassist writing lyrics too, Doug, yeah. so don't forget that. <laughs> well, that's good lyrics for a bassist. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the critics hated him, but the, now it's... but the populace loved him. Yeah. But again, this is one of those bands that people look back on, and critics now don't say that kind of no, stuff it's, about them. The Rolling Stone Record Guide gives it a uh, five stars. Yeah. And uh, All Music gives it five stars. Blender gives it five stars. It seems like if you're wrong the first time and the album has legs, you got to go back and reassess yeah. your yeah. opinion. You may, you may be too generous when you go back. I think yeah. so. That's to make it up. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, just because we mentioned the. Uh, bubblegum Satanism is the whole satanic panic thing. So that was a term that was, I think primarily used in the eighties about a lot of metal bands and, and D and D was thrown in there too. It was like all these pop culture things influencing the kids to go out and start committing sacrifices and stuff. The reason I bring that up is there was a story about a nurse committing suicide in the early seventies. And when they found her paranoid was still spinning on her turntable. So, oh. like, so the whole thing was there was some speculation that this album is what caused her to do it. You know, listening to Sabbath is what caused this poor woman to take her own life. Was she listening to it backwards? I don't know. <laughs> um, but so this was one of those early sort of, you know, and then we get into the whole thing with Stairway to Heaven and playing it backwards. Just all that inane nonsense that yeah. happened around that stuff. Um, anyway, you know, so I just I just think it's it's interesting that this particular album sort of was one of the earlier um you know wants uh, to get hit by the satanic pan uh sat- satanic panic yeah I, I, saw, I watched a program about that it was interesting well and then later on ozzy had a solo song called suicide is no solution that for some reason tipper gore thought it was causing people to kill kill yeah. themselves even though the song is called suicide is no solution <laughs> <laughs> i don't know she should have gone yeah. after uh, don't fear the reaper <laughs> all right Tony, you have exposed me to new music that <laughs> <Sorry>. I <laughs> I ended up liking it more than I thought I would. Well, yeah. That's good. And I'm glad you explained the meaning of some of those songs, because that was funny. Uh, <laughs> but we're at the end now, so like we do with all of these records, we're going to give two uh, re- reviews, two scores. One is going to be our person, what our heart tells us inside, <laughs> and the other will be our our cold-hearted head. We also call that the cold-hearted orb. And uh, that's going to be what we would give it as a critic whose job was, would be to get the right uh, objective uh, opinion of this album. I'm going to go to J.M. Jonathan Rowe first, because not just because of his humility, but also because he didn't pick the album. <laughs> what do right. you think? Well, I'm going to give my critics rating first on a uh, rating of one to five. I'm going to give it a four eight and I'm going to give it a four eight because I do think this is probably the template 
or heavy metal. There, it is a, um, it's got all the elements of it. It's got, I think Ozzy Osbourne is a really interesting singer. I think these guys play, uh, heavy metal the way it should be played. Uh, it's very well done. So I'm going to give it a four, eight, my personal rating. Here we go. <laughs> heavy metal to me has always seemed like it's trying to be the dark side of the force. You know, it, it, it's just, there's just something that is, it's yeah. It, there's just something. It's, it's even though it doesn't, it's always, I know that that's not really, it might be just kind of the hype that surrounds it, but there's just always some sort of doom and gloom associated with it. Um, it ain't happy music. It's not happy music, right? Not, and not it, like the happy music we'll see yeah. next week. But because of that, <laughs> <laughs> because of that, um, <laughs> you know, it, I can't take it seriously. It's, there's just nothing really that I can take seriously when I'm listening to a heavy metal song. To me, it's always just like, oh yeah, there's, you know, it, there's, it's always like a movie, like a, a silly movie. Um, so, you know, and it, it almost always sounds, it's getting to a point or got to a point, I think it's changed now, but it's almost a parody of itself. Um, that said, I think there is something different on this album because it's new, but you know, the, kind of the litmus test is, are you going to listen to this album again? I will probably never listen to this album all the way through again. There's songs on it I know I will listen to. So for that reason, I'm going to give it a 2-5. I think there's great songs on it. But, you know, as far as what what's the chance of me listening to it, just sitting down and listening to it again, probably next to nothing. So. That, that seems fair coming from you, J.M. I, <laughs> I'm, not dis- I'm not disappointed by that. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to go to me next, because that's my favorite topic on this show. Um, on my personal choice, I'm going to do that one first. Um, I thought it would I thought it'd be real easy to not like what I heard. I've, I've got a, a new test. That's called the change the language test. If you change this from English to a language I don't know, which would be all the other ones, uh, I think I would like it a lot more. Uh, the music and the playing, I enjoy on this record. Uh, the the singing, I, I think, is fine. Uh, my, my problem is some of it's just too silly. And what makes it worse is they're so serious while they're being so silly. Um, but it it I'd give it a three on a personal level. And I may listen to it again because I'm curious about it. Uh, as as a critic, I think I would give it for originality. Uh, there are some catchy things happening here, and there's some. I think I'd give it a four two as a critic, and uh, I'm not sorry at all. We covered it. If uh, it's a good thing this wasn't revenge for me because uh, it didn't work that way. I was so curious about a genre I had avoided my whole life that um, my curiosity got the best of me. Uh, so there you go. Tony, yeah, Doug. you picked this album. I did. It sounds like it uh, hit the battleship with JM. Uh, <laughs> what, where are you going to put this on your review? Well, you know, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times that this, the themes of this stuff are not happy, which is sort of the opposite of what I typically talk about over and over That's and over true. again. This is not power pop. 
But as I've mentioned earlier in in previous episodes, I was also a metalhead before I heard Driver 8 by R.E.M., which kind of changed my viewpoint on things. I mean, I had a base of other things. My mom, you know, had me listen to the Beatles and stuff. But that, that song in particular and then Unforgivable Fire, both those things changed me, moved me to a course out of metal and into other things. Um, yeah, the lyrics are silly. In fact, I, it's funny. I almost want to play you one of my favorite Sabbath songs, which is called Sweet Leaf, which is about pot. Starts off with Ozzy coughing rhythmically and then has lines like, you introduced me to my mind. I mean, it's the goof, but this, the riff and the song is so great. I love it. Um, I, I get what you're saying about them taking themselves seriously. I, it's never bothered me that much. I will say listening to this critically rather than just listening to it in the background or just sing along with it, the lyrics got on my nerves more than, <laughs> more than they have ever in the past, which was surprising. More, with, more than Zeppelin? <laughs> yeah. With, with the exception of a few songs, I think Hand of Doom is a great song lyrically. I think I love, I know you're not a fan of the theme, but I love War Pigs. I think that song's great. I think, um, Anyway, I'm babbling. Um, I'm going to agree with JM. I think a 4-8 is the right score for this critically. This is this sort of set the tone for what was to come. It's a found it's a foundational document for heavy metal. Um it is and and that being said, it's it for me it's it's immensely enjoyable to listen to. Uh I realized something about myself. In order for me to listen to the blues, it either needs to be countryfied or it needs to be metalfied, and then I'm okay with it. It's a weird deal. I don't get it. But we're anyway. gonna find out what happens if it's okified. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then, as far as my personal rating, obviously, I'm going to give it a higher rating than the two of you gave it. I'm going to give it a four three. Um, it's not my favorite Sabbath album, um, but it's probably their most. Um, it's her most complete work, if you will. And it makes sense that it is, it is kind of the blueprint for what they were to do mm-hmm. afterwards. So 4-3. Um, you know, there are other metal bands I like more. Um, it's funny. I, I'm thinking about possibly doing an Iron Maiden album on here. You're going to have, the, I think, the opposite reaction. You're going to hate the music and dig the lyrics is my, my prediction <laughs> if we ever do it. I don't, know, I don't know if I'll ever spring that on you or not. But anyway, that's my, those are my picks. I mean, my scores. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Tony. Uh, that does it for this episode of This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. We're coming up on our 100th episode, folks, and that means we are going to do our first ever repeat artist. So we're looking for some input on who that artist should be. Should it be Van Morrison? Should it be Pure try- Rush? Should <laughs> it be Rush? Make suggestions. Should it be Rush? Uh, should it be Southside John? Should it be Pink South, Floyd yeah. or Southside John or Springsteen? <laughs> Let us know, and you can reach us in various ways at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. You can also look us up on our Facebook group page and leave us a note there. Uh, but probably the best way to get in touch with us is through our webpage, tappingvinyl.com. You can find all sorts of good stuff up there related to the episodes that we've discussed or episodes and the albums that we've discussed. You can find all our recommendations up there. And there's uh, even a picture of us that will help explain why we are a podcast and not on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) A face for podcasts. Yeah, we don't yet. Uh, So be sure and look us up there and uh, you can also get links to every episode that we've done. We've had a lot of mail regarding our Pure Prairie League episode, and I have bad news. 
we had a catastrophe. Our brave producer has been trying to rescue that episode. We don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, I feel bad about that because it was one of our best episodes, but we'll keep trying. Award-winning, I think. Yes. yes it would it would have uh, made us more popular than Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing we're going to do, we've been asking our listeners, and we appreciate all of you, for a long time to give us some recommendations, and we've been uh, compiling those. And right now, the way we do this is I pick an album, Doug picks an album, JM picks an album. We rotate through those. We're going to start including those recommendations every fourth pick so you pick an album you pick an album and uh and so we will be doing those so we appreciate just please keep bringing the recommendations in we'll put them on the list and we'll put them in the rotation we really really appreciate everyone who listens and we appreciate all your feedback on that so look forward to that and the album that we are going to be doing that is the fans pick it will be forever changes by love that'll be the first one yep thank you for that recommendation Next week, we're going to be looking at an album by Lou Reed, his second album, Transformer. More than meets the eye. For your host, Doug Cooper, your co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Final Tap for all the podcasts go to 11, and reminding you, I am Iron Man. I love to watch things on TV. 